details matter to Professor Zarina Khan. That's why their William D. Shipman Professor of Economics keeps going back to the archives. She's trying to answer how the U.S. overtook England and France as an economic powerhouse in the 19th century. What she found was a stark difference in attitudes to creativity, ideas, and innovation. Ordinary people, as well as extraordinary people, would be able to create inventions that would be useful as long as they were given open access and correct incentives. The result was a democratization of invention. And her current research is focusing on an often neglected and marginalized group of inventors, women. One of my favorite inventions by women is one by an inventor who joined together a washing machine and a seesaw She said so that the exertions of the children while they're playing on the seesaw would wash the clothes more effectively. We discussed the stories that are revealed by studying ledgers and shareholder lists, the infamous Bowdoin insomnia squad, and whether the U.S. will retain its economic leadership position in the 21st century. Bowdoin presents Zarina Khan. It's a pleasure to have you here. Let's start from the beginning with your first book and see if we can work our way towards the present day. Your first book, called The Democratization of Invention, was awarded the Alice Hansen Jones Prize for Best Book in American Economic History in 2006. Would you explain how you came up with that title? What is the democratization of invention? But something that we often don't realize is that the U.S. is the most successful economy in all of human history, and that's not an exaggeration. So the overall question is, why is that? How did this come about? And at the time that Bowdoin was founded, this country was basically just a banana republic without any bananas. And a really fundamental question is how it was that we overtook European countries like Britain and France. And I point to the importance of knowledge and ideas. But all societies have realized how important ideas are. Where they've differed is in their assumptions about what sorts of ideas would be important and who would be best able to produce useful ideas. So in Europe, they had a model where they thought that special people, people who were very wealthy and well-connected, or ones who had very technical qualifications, were best suited for generating useful ideas. And they placed a lot of emphasis on what they called great inventions. So they actually tried to deter small inventors and small inventions. The US had a very different model. I'm not a fan of Thomas Jefferson in general. However, he had this notion that small ideas in a democratic society would be more useful because they would benefit the mass of the population. And there was an assumption that no one has a monopoly on the ability to benefit society. Ordinary people, as well as extraordinary people, would be able to create inventions that would be useful as long as they were given open access and correct incentives. So this democratic approach really focused on the importance of diversity of ideas. And it was interesting that at the time, the founders were very influenced by Adam Smith. 
And his notion that expansions in market demand would generate technological innovation. And this was embodied in the policies that the US implemented. So as a result, you had what economists call balanced growth, meaning that the entire economy benefited from the surge of productivity and increases in technological innovation. Whereas in England, you had what was called unbalanced growth, meaning that just a few sectors benefited and the mass of the population did not. So it generated greater inequality in outcomes. Now, another way of looking at this is to consider the policies with regard to patents and to copyrights. So the US was the noted implementer of the strongest patent system in the entire world. And other countries recognized that one of the reasons for the sources of economic growth in the US was this very strong protection of intellectual property rights through patents. But at the same time, we were noted for being notorious copyright pirates throughout the entire 19th century. And it's interesting to see that uh, at Bowdoin, there was a lot of uh, outrage against the copyright policies. And Bowdoin professors, Bowdoin authors were always lobbying Congress to try to change the copyright laws to no avail. And the reason, I think, is that there was a sense that access to ideas, knowledge, and information was really important for learning. And it was a precursor for productive technological change. And as a result, we didn't want to have monopolies on ideas. Whereas in Europe, it was exactly the opposite. They had very weak patent rights, but they had very strong copyrights. As a result, towards the end of the 19th century, there were movements to harmonize intellectual property rights, meaning to have similar sorts of rules in all countries. And we led the world in patents, but we had no moral sway in terms of copyrights. So the French led this push towards strong copyrights. And as a result, developing countries today encounter a system of both strong patent rights and strong copyrights, even though while we were developing, no country had the two together. And I actually think that we got it right in the 19th century. I think that society benefits from very strong rights in intellectual property in the form of patents. But I think that especially with new technological uh, developments today with the digital economy, that we benefit from weaker copyrights. And so overall, the US became the foremost economy in the entire world because of this democratization of invention. Your work is, as I can tell, very grounded in empirical research and historic documents. And I get the sense that you spent a lot of time in the archives, especially for this latest book, Inventing Ideas. And you have these vivid accounts of inventors and inventions that you came across and that history has long since forgotten are there a couple that you could perhaps share with us here that really stood out to you? Well, first, the reason why I dissipated a lot of my youth uh, going through archives in Paris and London and San Francisco and even here in Maine is that I think it's really important to get the details right. But as you point out, I can give you uh, lots of examples uh, from my adventures and excursions in archives, but I'll limit it to some relating to Bowdoin and to Maine. 
Now, in the period towards the end of the 19th century, the sort of new dot-com era of the time was devoted to electricity. And uh, you had large fortunes that were being created and lost dealing with uh, inventions related to electricity. And I'm going to point to three Bowdoin inventors who were actually central to the development of electricity. One of them was uh, Francis Upton. And uh, Francis Upton was uh, Bowdoin 75. That's 1875. And he was recruited by Edison at his Menlo Park lab. And he would work with Edison for about 25 years. Now, Edison was an inventor who was not very well educated. And he basically came up with his ideas through trial and error. But his investors realized that with electricity, you needed a more systematic approach. And so they forced him to hire someone who was far more qualified, who was Francis Upton. And uh, Upton was uh, someone who, of course, was very cultured. He, he knew German because he studied in Germany. He knew French. He was a virtuoso piano player. So he raised the tone and intellectual level at Menlo Park to the extent that his nickname there was culture. <laughs> and uh, he was actually the first person to have a house that was fully uh, powered by electricity in the entire world. Now, showing the importance of Bowdoin connections, a classmate of Upton was uh, Charles Clark. And uh, Upton persuaded Edison to hire his chum from, from, uh, from college. And uh, the first experience that Clark had at the Edison lab was not a very happy one because he short-circuited the entire lab <laughs> because he really wasn't <laughs> that aware of the developments in technology. He would learn it later through, through again, uh, working on the job like many people did. And he and his co-workers would uh, sleep in the lab and they would work very long hours trying to resolve all of the problems that would come up to the extent that they were called the insomnia squad. And I have a feeling that being a Bowdoin student kind of, you know, prepares you for life as part of the insomnia squad. Now, these two individuals really propelled and facilitated the development of electrical technology in the US and the entire world. And it's really interesting to observe that there's another Bowdoin inventor who is called Isaac Adams. And he could be considered the very first inventor of a viable light bulb. And he did so several years before, maybe 14 years before Edison did so. So he is noted for perhaps being the first inventor. But an important thing to realize is that it isn't necessarily the first inventor who's the one who's going to get all the benefits because what really matters is creating an invention that's going to benefit consumers in the marketplace. And Isaac Adams did not really realize the full implications of the invention he'd come up with. And so he, he viewed it as a sort of intriguing intellectual exercise and he just laid it aside. And it was only later when competitors were trying to bring down the Edison monopoly that they asked him to testify and say that Edison didn't own the light bulb rights that Isaac Adams did. But Adams, when he testified, said, you know, I had the first idea about how to do this, but I never really 
realize the full commercial implications. And so I would not want to put myself up as a competitor against Edison, which I think is, is very interesting. He's noted for other inventions, not for his invention of the light bulb. That is intriguing is. to step down from that kind of ownership of something so revolutionary. Exactly. Oh, what a character. That's remarkable. I heard you in a different interview <laughs> ask this really simple but really perfect question. And unless you've already patented this question, I'm going to bounce it back to you. What is your favorite invention and why? Well, the first thing is that uh, my students realize this as well, what my favorite invention is. And at one point, uh, they, the class gave me a giant paperclip as a present because they realize how much I value that invention. And the reason why I am fascinated by the paperclip is that in a technical sense, it's a very simple invention. It's a piece of wire that is twisted around. It's not the internal combustion engine. It's not a nuclear reactor. But it's extremely productive. And so the economic value is very high. And it illustrates this fundamental difference between technical value and economic value, where economic value is more related to the benefits that are conferred on consumers and users in the marketplace. And as I pointed out, this was a difference between the approach in the United States and in Europe, where in Europe they were very much focused on generating what they thought were great inventions, the ones that were technically very advanced, but which didn't really create much in the way of productivity gains. Whereas here in the US, we didn't judge what was a great invention or what was not. It was up to the marketplace to make that determination. So the important thing was to allow everyone to have open access to property rights. And once they were induced to come up with what they thought would be useful, then it was not up to a judge or up to a committee to say this is a great invention. It was up to the marketplace. And so today, you see billionaires you know, putting up money for shuttles to the moon, etc. And I'm sure that's very delightful and is going to be entertaining to follow. But I actually think that we're going to have far greater benefits from supposedly small inventions like the paperclip. But I want to point out that there are a lot of inventions by women that I find to be very intriguing. And in particular, I considered women in frontier areas who were very far away from support groups and who confronted very difficult circumstances and their efforts to make their own lives easier. And so one of my favorite inventions by women is one by an inventor who joined together a washing machine and a seesaw she said so that the exertions of the children while they're playing on the seesaw would wash the clothes more effectively. And I think that is so <laughs> delightful because it, it shows this capacity for ingenuity and invention that is going to be spurred by the circumstances in which you find yourself, which no committee or panel could ever predict. And so paper clips and washing machines, I think, mean more to the general population than starships to Alpha Centauri. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, it's hard to even imagine life without some of those, exactly. some of those everyday objects. And, you know, some people might say, well, that was the 19th century. What about today? Today, surely uh, these very abstruse technologies, the, the ones that are very scientifically progressive are the ones that are going to make the biggest difference. But if you look at the enterprises that have transformed our world in the 21st century, the majority of them were created by founders who actually didn't have a lot of education or or advanced uh, training in in science. So, for instance, companies like Microsoft and Spotify and Dell and Alibaba were all founded by individuals who either never went to college or who dropped out of college. And there's even a billionaire today, I'm not going to name him, who offers $100,000 to students as an inducement to drop out of college. Well, as a college professor, I'm not sure if that's something exactly, you want exactly. to be promoting as an idea. Yes, perhaps perhaps uh, we should edit this by saying that uh, a college education is not a detriment to technological <laughs> innovation and creativity. Yeah, that's true. If we, we gaze into the future a little bit um, at your current project that I mentioned in the intro, and it is an exploration of women's entrepreneurship and innovation. And can you tell us a little bit more about what you're focusing on in this work? You know, when I wrote my first book, at the end of it, I promised myself that I would never write a second book. And then I wrote my second book, and I promised myself that I would never write a third book. However, I think it's really important to have a more systematic approach to the role of women in the economy. And in particular, we need more information about women as entrepreneurs and as investors and as founders of companies. Now, in the 19th century, it's very difficult to get that sort of information. And even today, it, it still is. So you can imagine how thrilled I was when I was meandering through the stacks here at Bowdoin. And I came upon some very chunky books in, in uh, right around the corner from where we're sitting. And I'm very curious, inquisitive. And so I was wondering exactly what are in these very chunky books. And I opened it up and I was sort of stunned. I felt as if I discovered gold. Because these books included lists of shareholders in all of the corporations in Maine in the 19th century. Now, there's nothing like this in the entire country. And so I immediately treated those books as my own and got permission to take them out of the library and stack them up in, in my office. And uh, I had teams of research assistants who diligently digitized all of the data. And so now I have a data set of about 40,000 investors in Maine, in all of the sectors and all of the corporations. And as I said, there's nothing comparable to this for any other state in the country. I once was told that a good story is worth a thousand good spreadsheets. So I have a good story for that. And that is that when I was presenting this research in France, I decided that I would get a case study that I would show as an example. And so I just randomly pulled some people out of my spreadsheet. And one of them was called Leonard Woods, and the other was called Noah Woods. And then when I did further research, 
I found out that Leonard Wurz was actually a president of Bowdoin College in 1839. Wow. What are the chances? I know. People would not believe that this is something that was just quite random. So basically the story was that he's an impecunious professor who knows nothing about investments. However, his relative, uh, Noah, is a wheeler and dealer who's very experienced in investing and very wealthy as well from from his activities. And... uh, what this shows is that related investing really was a way for inexperienced investors to overcome the difficulties that they would have by tapping into the knowledge and resources that their relatives already had. And economists call this uh, overcoming asymmetries in information. And what I find is that it wasn't just the case that the entire list of shareholders included a large number who were related, but that there were systematic patterns. For instance, related investors tended to be individuals who you might think would be relatively disadvantaged at investing, such as women, investors who weren't very wealthy and small investors, and investors in very risky enterprises. So what all of this suggests is that related investing, far from being a policy that would lead to exploitation of shareholders, actually facilitated, we might say, a democratization of investing in the United States. And so I'm going to continue working on these data. And I want to explore the role of women investing in particular, because usually when economists try to gauge wealth in the United States, we use information from the population censuses. Now, in the population censuses, you have a huge lacuna, a huge gap, because the wealth tends to be attributed to the head of the household, who typically is male. And so we do not have very good estimates of wealth for women. And so there's very little knowledge about women's ability to generate income or to be entrepreneurial right now. But these data from Maine will allow us to bridge that gap and give us a better sense of how wealthy women were relative to men. And it's uh, quite stunning as some of these women were enormously wealthy. One of the richest uh, investors in all of Maine was actually a woman. To conclude this fantastic conversation that is somehow trying to accomplish the impossible, which is summarizing your vast body of work and research, I wanted to end on something that uh, looks a little bit forward, and that would be um, what you think based on your research, based on all this empirical data that you've been looking at, do you think that the U.S. will maintain this leadership position that it's had in technological advances and innovation throughout this century? You know, my students sometimes become quite frustrated because I tell them that a good answer to any economic question is always, it depends. And an excellent answer is when you say, on what? It depends. Maybe we should be dealing with quantum economics rather than absolutist economics. Actually, uh, Foreign Affairs magazine asked me a similar question. And what I pointed out was that the 20th century has been called the American century. 
And my books have shown that one of the fundamental reasons for this sort of success lies in our unique approach to ideas and to creativity and the rejection of state-administered solutions to the problems that arise in that context. That we have put our faith in the wisdom of crowds and the importance of a decentralized approach that taps into the creativity of ordinary people in the marketplace. So would the 21st century be another American century? It depends. And if the federal government of the United States decides to violate the Constitution in two centuries of American policies, then I would say the answer to that question goes closer to the the notion of uh, definitely not. But if we think about our closest competitors, well, China is certainly one of them. And in the 1980s, China experienced very rapid growth owing to their freeing up of markets. But if we look at the sorts of policies that China is implementing, especially with regard to intellectual property rights, they're actually very close to the European approach in the 19th century, which is they're putting their faith in a top-down policy, which depends on pushing increases in the supply of very advanced technology and individuals who are specialized in science and technology. And they are adopting an administered innovation system, which, as I mentioned, is one where you have the state making decisions about how to allocate resources. In a population of over a billion people, that sort of approach, just as it did in England, will create benefits for specific groups and an unbalanced sort of economic growth. But for social welfare to increase in China, it must be the case that everyone in the population has to be involved and everyone has to be given access to the resources to ensure that they can tap into their own creativity. And I don't see that happening in China right now. But ultimately, I actually don't think it matters who is the world's foremost technological leader. Technological progress is not a race, it's not a zero-sum game, with one winner where, and everyone else is a loser. I think one of the key benefits of a market economy, whether it's national or whether it's global, is that everyone can be a winner. China can be a winner, the United States can be a winner. And it's just like in a game of chess, when you have two strong rivals, they can reach heights that uh, one of them by themselves cannot achieve by themselves. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and research with us. Professor Khan, it's been a pleasure to have you. I'm delighted to participate in this podcast. <laughs>